Hi there. You're listening to The Fray. This is episode three of part one of the podcast series, The Alpha Human. If you haven't listened to episodes one and two, that's fine. Feel free to do so if you need to. If you want to jump right in to episode three, I welcome you. So join me as we enter The Fray. child of the late 70s and early 80s, I grew up watching game shows on TV. Like anything else, there were some good ones and some not-so-good ones, but I watched most of them and liked most of them. I liked the giant black ball thing that was used to spin the wheels on Joker's Wild. It appealed to me aesthetically. In that same vein, I greatly enjoyed the sound the tiles made when a contestant dropped them in the little slot to employ them in the puzzle on Scrabble. And I absolutely loved when winners on Wheel of Fortune got to pick their prizes. Their little floating head in the corner of the screen. Like I said, I watched a lot of game shows. With all those game shows, you might think that it would be difficult for me to pick a favorite. But not so. There was one undisputed king of game shows for me. This particular show was so awesome that it was granted an entire hour of television. In the early 80s, that was saying something, as there was only three national TV networks. Space was limited, but not for the prices right. From 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. weekdays, the prices right held a special place in my heart and in the hearts of most fans of game shows. And as far as the show goes, I'm a Bob Barker guy. He's my host. Elegantly maneuvering the games along, deftly employing his little microphone like a conductor's baton. As the years wore on and his brown coif turned white, I mean, the dude didn't even paint. Didn't need it. He's Bob Barker. If you need a reminder, go ahead and watch some Happy Gilmore. As the years passed, Bob never wavered, always reminding us to help control the pet population by making sure to spay and neuter our pets. Thanks, Bob. At the end of each hour-long episode of The Price is Right, there was a showcase between two contestants. It was my favorite part of the show. While I had my favorite games that were played through the course of the show, games like Punch-A-Bunch, Plinko, Cliffhangers, it was all about the showcase for me, for any number of reasons, but here are just a few. Contestants had a chance for retribution. It's pretty rare in the game show world. If you made it past the come on down part on The Price is Right and into a game and you lost, you still got a chance to win big in the showcase. And so as a kid who didn't fit in naturally with the popular crowd, this sort of justice appealed to me. Secondly, there was some real money involved. Now, the rest of The Price is Right games paid out on scale with other game shows. I mean, there was exceptions like the $64,000 pyramid, but generally speaking... The Price is Right was commensurate. But the showcase was for real money. Tens of thousands of dollars in cash and prizes. Which nowadays may not be so much in the world of game shows, but back in the day it was exhilarating to think that you could walk away with 38000 in prizes. Including a new car! 
Thirdly, it was a zero-sum game. Easy to understand. They play by Highlander rules. There can be only one. It made for compelling daytime television. What does this have to do with ancient Greece, and in particular, our alpha human Socrates? Speaking as a fan of both, I would love to see the older, say, late 60s Socrates on The Price is Right. I would love to see that come on down moment for Socrates, running down the stairs, barefoot, dressed in two pieces of ragged cloth held together by two pins, probably made of bone, crowd cheering him on. He certainly would have some questions. And I would love to see him and Bob have some repartee. Barker wielding that mic like a rapier. Socrates asking pointed questions. All the while, Bob keeping those games moving along. Alas, that show never happened. But someday, along with my personal AI, I'll investigate that meta episode. But for now, there's another reason for me waxing Homeric about The Price is Right. The reason is, we're about to play our own little version of The Price is Right, or at least our version of the showcase, but with some key differences. Instead of a standard showcase with tons of cash and prizes up for grabs, we're going to have a crisis showdown, where pantloads of misery are on the table. That's right. You're going to have a chance to select from two different economic crises. I mean, what other podcasts are giving you this type of entertainment? I don't, I can't think of any. Now, the rules of this crisis showdown have been tweaked a bit to fit this fun new format. Instead of just being able to bid or steal on showcases, you will be presented with both economic dilemmas. Then, after hearing both crises, you will have a chance to place them in a specific time frame. By time frame, I mean chunks of time, like the Renaissance or the future. And bonus If you are within 250 years of a crisis with your guess, you'll be eligible for even more explanation of why there was such despair and disenfranchisement. It's a win-win. Let's see our first economic crisis, please. This crisis contains issues revealed as we consider the following disastrous situation. And what's better in a disaster than a little oppression? That's right. A great excuse to ruin people's lives as, quote, the instrument of efficiency became the handy tool of oppression, unquote. And enjoy your dose of oppression with a little paradox. In this economic crisis, wealth will grow for many in society, but not for everyone, as, quote, many others lost their opportunities, but did not yet know themselves as inferior, as its victims were suffering amongst great abundance, unquote. And no crisis would be complete without a first-hand account. Quote, the intrusion of the commercial spirit did more than just make men think. It made them suffer. For the new lords of the city, with their money bags and silver-bought slaves, knew neither mercy or justice. Gold and silver were in their houses, but iron was in their hearts. Unquote. Okay, podcast listener, take a moment to mull that crisis over before we hear what awaits in economic crisis number two. Welcome back. All right, podcast listener. Here is economic crisis number two. This crisis is filled with trouble designed to mine even the strongest of economies into why, quote, growing the economy 
and increasing efficiency were goals most of us put first. If certain communities, towns, and people suffered in this, it was all for the greater good in the name of progress, unquote. And how can one imagine a crisis where a group of people find themselves on the wrong side of the line? Quote, they are left with a world where their sense of home, family, and community won't get them anywhere, won't pay the bills, and where their jobs are disappearing, unquote. No march of progress would be complete without focusing only on, quote, what could be measured, and that meant material wealth. These things that couldn't be easily measured, community, dignity, faith, happiness, were largely ignored because they were hard to see, unquote. And to cap off this fabulous crisis with some real sense of desperation as, quote, the people left in these communities who saw their factories disappear, their downtowns devastated, their neighborhoods filling with drugs and despair, had nowhere to turn. Okay, podcast listener, what time frames do these two economic crises belong to? I'll admit it, it's not a very hard showdown. All you got to do is put 36 and 119 together, and you're going to be able to determine that one crisis is taking place in and around ancient Greece, and the other is happening to us right now. Congratulations, you've won further explanation. And as to why the numbers 36 and 119 need to be combined to reach that conclusion, well, there is no reason. It's as arbitrary as adding up two and two. The fact that you are adding two integers together matters. If the saying was about simplicity, then it would say when you put one and one together. It doesn't, so 36 and 119 are as sufficient as the number two. But I digress. The information and quotations I used for the economic crisis that afflicted Greece in the 7th and 6th century BC was from our boy Alfred Zimmern and his book, The Greek Commonwealth. From that text and other online sources, you heard quotes from Mr. Zimmern himself, historian Herodotus, and poet Hesiod. Hesiod's a newcomer to the podcast. He was a popular poet for the common man, sort of a populist with a conservative bent. Homer was sort of city. Hesiod was country. Think of it that way. Uh, the information and quotes I used for the second and still ongoing financial crisis that we currently find ourselves in is from a book entitled Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, and is written by a photojournalist named Chris Arnade. Super highly recommend his book. Let's get back to those eerily similar crises. It is striking how it sounded like the same crisis. It sounded like I was reading maybe newspaper clippings from one thing. And a quick check of the scoreboard confirms that these two crises took place over 2,600 years apart. It's kind of stunning to think of it that way, in the sense because they seem to have so much in common. And why is there such commonality between the crisis afflicting ancient Greece and the one afflicting our world today? They both share human suffering, both psychological and physical. They also share the feeling of being left behind, or worse, ridiculed and mocked by those on the other side. Being, quote, mocked and stigmatized, unquote, is how the modern book, Dignity book, put it, and, quote, hated by progressives is how it was put in the ancient text. These two phrases are connected despite being separated by almost three millennia. Though I just listed at least three things that we have in common with our ancient Greek counterparts when it comes to financial crises, I still do not think that I've gotten to the root of the what or the why. So I'd like to introduce a new feature on the podcast. It's a feature that benefits me. Awesome. 
I call it a trigression. I'm going to try out something new from a thought standpoint or an idea standpoint in sort of trying to figure out why these two economic crises seem so similar. So if it seems like I'm going a little bit off the reservation when it comes to Socrates, there's a reason why it's called a trigression. So join me as we trigress. What exactly caused the financial crisis? I was trying to simplify what is sure to be a complex answer into one or two main reasons. For a long time leading up to this episode, I was ready to put forth a theory that I borrowed from Alfred Zimmern. He describes in great length the crisis that Greece found themselves in. He mentions quite a few contributing factors that assuredly helped worsen the crisis. I, had, I did latch on to one in particular. As the leading candidate was the type of new technology. At or around the start of the financial meltdown, the coining of money was introduced to Greece. The world of a barter and makeshift currency type system was coming to an end, well, for most of Greece. The Spartans, always got to be dickheads, used heavy iron bars for their money, long rebar-looking things that couldn't easily be used. It was effective at making them extremely frugal and as no one wanted to trade with them. Whereas coin money, silver and gold, was about to propel the rest of the peninsula out of the Iron Age and into the age of market forces. Needless to say, coins were a big hit. The convenience and flexibility of coin money was state-of-the-art technology. But it's important to remember that as advanced in some areas as the Greeks were, standardized currency was something that they were not prepared for. They had no word for technology. To most Greeks, money's abilities and attributes were very much on the magical spectrum. I mean, after all, money could breed, and money was one of those things that you could never have too much of. Of course, this wasn't the view held by all Greeks. Many of them intuitively understood what money was and how to use it. They did so with absolutely no restraints or scruples. They didn't understand why you needed any. Like most alchemists, it was a matter of finding what worked and rinsing and repeating. It wasn't science or experimentation, peer review, and other facets assure factual accuracy. And once wealth started to flow from one side of society to the other, the proverbial gas pedal was never taken off the floor. So that leaves us with two groups, two coalitions, one consisting of members who understand utilize, and generally benefit from coin money, the other consisting of members who do not understand, do not utilize, and generally are harmed by the introduction of coin money. Why is that? How can one group of people living in the same geographic region, most of the time in the same city-state, given access to the new technology at the same time, have such a divergent outcome? And more importantly, why is it still happening over 2,500 years later? So those two coalitions, I'm going to label them progressives and conservatives, should be familiar terms to us all. They were very familiar to the people back in ancient Greece as well. So progressive versus conservatives. Coins helped make many things better and also make many people wealthy. Using coins was a demonstration of progress, but it risked the very essence of what it meant to be Greek. The Delphic Oracle was very popular during this crisis. The left behind flocked to its simple call for moderation. 
abiding by the oracle was a declaration of conservatism. So far, so good. So when I turned to find the correlative technological advance that created our current economic crisis, I thought I found it with the internet. It seemed at first to be a good fit, but when I thought about it some more, it became apparent that the internet was not to blame for our predicament. In fact, I decided that technology as a whole was not to blame for either economic crisis. Coins, while exacerbating the long-standing issues between city dwellers and country dwellers, was not the cause of the economic crisis at the 7th and 6th century BC. The internet, while exacerbating the long-standing issues between the back row kids and the front row kids, was not the cause of our current economic crisis. So what gives? If it's not technology, what is it? Now I'm going to say it was and is, because I think it's still going on at least, a few things that conspire to create a society-changing economic crisis. And I'm going to make it pretty simple. I think you have to have three things. And I think we share this with our ancient Greek counterparts. So you have, first, you have to have adversaries. Two coalitions, minimum. We have them. We have many small coalitions, I'm sure. But we have the two main ones. Again, I'm labeling it progressives versus conservatives. Two, you have to have a rapid pace of technological change. That's an easy box to check off for both them and us. And the third factor is that you have to incorporate evolution. And that's a heavy entry there at number three. A lot to unpack when examining social forces with an eye to evolutionary processes. It is hard for us to do this because we never think this way. We like to consider human behavior as being caused by and inhabited by whole individuals whose choices are guided by their themness. I choose to do something because I'm Jason. Jason likes movies. He likes baseball. He likes jazz. All that we examine as an entity named Jason doing this. That's sort of the old-fashioned way. It is another thing entirely to think of that same human behavior as a culmination of unconscious, intuitive inferences that are honed by evolution. I mean, why should that be? Why should that be strange? We use that type of thinking, evolutionary thinking, to explain so much of our natural world. And the great thing about it is that it works very well. It takes things that necessarily were at best theoretical, if not fantasy, guessing why things work the way they do, why human behavior the way is the way it is. It takes away the guesswork and applies rigorous science to it by saying, well, if we have this behavior, we have to have had it evolve for some reason. There's no reason for us to have this if it didn't win the fight or at least be winning the fight of fitness in the evolutionary Olympics, right? I mean, using evolutionary science to ascertain the reason for a bird's bent beak, I mean, how we get platypuses and why baboons have such exposed ass cheeks has proved highly enlightening and effective. It's sort of an Occam's razor for a lot of the social sciences, in a sense, because we can now start to actually look at the physical and evolutionary processes that applied to a million years of evolution of the human species to make us the way we are. When we turn that fine-tuned analytical process of evolutionary science loose on human behavior, it is no surprise that the insights provided are as consistent and paradigm-changing as when we examine the behaviors of bonobos, microbes, blue whales, you name it. This isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. This is not a unifying theory of human behavior. 
It's not fortune telling. What it is, is taking individual instances of things that we do on an everyday basis and trying to determine why we do them based on asking the question, how did it evolve? Why is this going to help us survive? This way of thinking is from a recent book, or many books about it, but the book I'm going to pull from is pretty new. It came out in the last couple of years. It's called How Minds Make Societies. It's a very eye-opening book. If you've ever been curious about why we do the things we do, especially as a group of people, culture, or society, then this book is definitely for you. The author, Pascal Boyer, is a cognitive scientist who is very much an evolutionary thinker. He believes that if there is a trait or behavior, then there is an evolutionary reason for us to have it, and there is no other reason. He believes that the human mind has developed a great number of intuitive inference systems over the course of its evolution, and here's just a list of some of them he he gives us. Quote, detecting people's line of gaze, assessing people's attractiveness, parsing sentences, telling friends from enemies, detect the presence of pathogens, sorting animals into species and families, creating three-dimensional scenes, engaging in cooperative action, predicting the trajectory of solid objects, detecting social groups in a community, creating emotional bonds with one's offspring, understanding narratives, figuring out stable personality traits, estimating when violence is appropriate or counterproductive, thinking about absent people, learning what foods are safe, inferring dominance from social interactions. Unquote. All of those happen in your mind before you ever think to think about them. They are intuitive inferences that appear, and then we apply our themness, my Jasonness, to that piece of information that these inferences spit out. There are many, many more systems that get developed over hundreds of thousands of years in our brain. The group of individuals that acquired just marginally better versions of these systems were deemed fit by evolution, and they, those traits and behaviors get passed on until we get us. The systems perfected under the lathe of evolution are how we get the real world, how our minds make society. Now, we humans have evolved to see the world the same because we as a species evolved very similar cognitive processes. These processes were helped along by consistent natural rules, such as the Earth's rotation, the seasons, and gravity. Using such naturally occurring constants allows the mind to construct consistent systems that are shared among all that have the same cognitive systems, that is, all us humans. This is due in large part to how we sense the world and how the senses evolved to process all the information available out in the natural world. Our senses gather only a small part of the information that's available. It's the information that matters to our cognition. We understand narratives. We think about absent people. We can detect another person's line of gaze. While we don't sense the salinity of water, like salmon, or the acidity of a lump of poo, like a dung beetle, that type of information is always there. We just evolved to not gather it. Our senses didn't evolve to incorporate that information. Now, evolution is defined by haves and have-nots, right? The successful and the ones left behind. It's never a level playing field. Some of the human species must, over the course of time, fallen short over the eons and been weeded out, so to speak. 
What if the divide between progressives and conservatives is one of evolution? One side simply didn't get the upgrade and is now fading into obsolescence. Is that why we always find ourselves in the position of crisis, even after thousands of years of experience and knowledge? Is it all just a manifestation of evolution in action? That's a kind of particularly chilly thought. Anyway, just to tie this to this trigression, let's revisit the three things I listed earlier in order to have a financial crisis. First, you need adversaries, right? So this is important as we apply our new evolutionary thinking. This is important as one of the major intuitive systems we use is one that deals with coalitions. We are 100% predisposed to form into groups. We are also very, very likely to use that group to fight another group. Even if we don't actually resort to violence, this evolved behavior trait makes us susceptible to think of our adversaries as outsiders, not like us, less than human. As it turns out, our coalition behavior also pushes us to signal our loyalty to our cause, oftentimes regardless of the accuracy of our statements. Take one look at any propaganda from any era, for example. And listen to our current U.S. administration and how they talk about their adversaries. It sounds extreme, and it's supposed to. Our minds love to show off and accept bad shit from our own coalition. Next time you're on Twitter, you can start seeing the remarks and insults being thrown back and forth, and instead of throwing your hands in the air in exasperation, wondering how someone can be so obtuse when it comes to the facts, you can start to see it as a signaling behavior instead, meant to display loyalty to a particular coalition. It doesn't make it less odious, but it does remove the mystery behind our communication struggles. Now, number two, you know, we got our adversaries fighting now and they're not going to lay it down. They're not going to agree to disagree. They're going to continue to try and out display themselves on their fealty to their cause. It's going to ratchet up. People are going to double down. And then the technological advance, for the obvious reason that left without access to current technology, you will lose any game you choose to play during any time in history. You know, you're, you're just standing in front of a tank at that point, right? So the technology stresses that way. But it also, in the less obvious reason, that an advance in technology can expose a sneaky little evolutionary wrinkle. So remember I talked earlier about how if you're a different animal, if you're a dung beetle, your perception and information that you gather from your perception and your senses is going to be on a wholesale different level than, say, us as human beings, because it pertains to fitness for survival, right? So if different species of animals can develop different senses of the world, using their senses. Can that also happen with groups of people? If you only watch Fox News, do you become deaf to facts from another source regardless of their accuracy? Same goes for Facebook. Same goes for MSNBC. If you read only Hesiod in your farmhouse, did that make you blind to coins and what they could be? Maybe? Doesn't seem like it's been going on long enough for us to be that specific but it seems like some sort of deafness, blindness to the other side, to facts, thanks to the coalitional behavior, certainly happens. Now, one thing is for certain, the coalition behavior mixed in with the stress that a new technology presents to a society makes it so that no one listens to anyone from, from the other side. And the louder one shouts, all the more louder comes the retort. And then the doubling down will continue until one side either capitulates or is defeated outright. That's why number three is evolution. That's what evolution tells us. We are struggling today, just like we struggled back in 
ancient Athens because these evolved systems that were used to dealing with mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, hunting and gathering, living past the age of 12, these systems, that's how they evolved. They, they cut their teeth on 800,000 years of hunter-gatherer. And we have these brains that are dealing with concepts like credit and interest rates, bandwidth and hypertext transfer protocols. I've heard it put once that we have caveman brains trying to live in the modern world. And if it is so, it is truly amazing to see how far we've gotten with so little. I mean, the sooner we can start to see our behavior as part of an evolved world that obeys the same rules as all other natural phenomenon, the faster we can escape the loops of angst and misery we always seem to find ourselves in. So back on point, back in ancient Greece, you had large groups of Greeks who didn't like each other and neither was willing or able to capitulate to the other. Technology and progress put strain on the relationship that contains neither empathy or compassion as both treat it as a zero-sum game, ratcheting up their rhetoric until violent altercation is inevitable. We were at the point in the episode when everyone starts to ask, what does this have to do with Socrates? Directly? Not much. That's why I call this a trigression instead of a digression. I'm trying out some new material. I'm trying new info to help me make sense of why two cultures that were separated by so much time can be foundering along in such a similar manner. All I know is that after trying out many different explanations, this evolutionary explanation is just so straightforward. It was the only way I could connect the dots between ancient Greeks and our current world. The reason is we are stuck in the same type of crisis as the ancient Greeks is that we're using the same brains as the ancient Greeks, with the same evolved intuitive systems to make our society. That's the end of my trigression. Thanks for hopefully sticking with me through that. I hope you find it useful. I find the book and the, the idea of using evolutionary thinking behind human behavior is fascinating, effective, and this won't be the last time you hear me bring it up. So hopefully this is a little bit of a taste of trying to make sense of the world. And I find it makes me happy, frankly, to pass it along if you find it interesting because it helps make a lot of the inexplicable explicable. So this matters to us. We have problems that could use solutions. As did the Athenians, and concerning Socrates, the economic crisis is occurring within a century or so before his birth. And if our beauty doesn't get herself cleaned up and out of a bad situation, then our beast is in real trouble. Athens is going to be hit particularly hard by this crisis, as we have been by ours. Their survival depended on how they chose to remedy their situation, and so will ours. So Athens had to resolve the crisis, and that is the main difference between the financial crisis of the 7th and 6th century BC and the one we are experiencing now, is that the ancient crisis was resolved. Ours is not. It still rages on, and if history is anything to go by, it will be some time before real change is put into effect. How will our resolution stack up to the Athenians? We adopted their form of government. Will we use their tactics to navigate our economic desperation? To quote Sammy Hagar, only time will tell if we stand the test of time. So what did they do? Declare democracy and drop the mic? No. They first had to kick the tyrant habit. The ancient tribal system that was the driving force behind Athenian politics supported dozens of oligarchies. They were not keen on reform. The system, with the introduction of metal coinage, was making the cities rich and the oligarchs richer. Looking back on this time a century or so later, the historian Herodotus put his finger 
on a peculiarity in the chaos of the economic crisis, that of the populist demagogue. He had quite a bit to say about this type of leader and their leadership style. He felt that the type of tyrant that comes to power in times of economic crisis is a particular type of nasty that is worse than your run-of-the-mill tyrant. Check out what he had to say. Quote, Indeed, how can an autocracy be a well-constituted government when one man is allowed to do whatever he pleases without having to answer for his actions? One would expect a man who holds the sovereign power to be free from envy, since he already possesses every advantage, but he is standing proof to the contrary in his behavior to the public. For he envies the best of those who survive under his rule and delights in the worst of its citizens. He very readily listens to calumny and is the most inconsistent of all men. If you show him respect and moderation, he is offended because he is not sufficiently honored, Herodotus goes on to say. The tyrant changes the rights and customs of our ancestors, violates women, and puts men to death without trial. Unquote. So let me get this straight. Ancient Athens had a problem with leaders that they had a hard time holding to task. Ones that changed the rights of the people. Leaders who required fealty and regularly engaged in calumny, which means making of false and defamatory statements. Fake news. The most inconsistent of all men who delights in the worst of its citizens. Huh. So if you were wondering where we are relative in our crisis to the Athenians, then this should give you a pretty good idea. The only thing that Herodotus didn't say is that he was a big, fat, orange turd. Other than that, it certainly sounded like Athens had a leadership deficiency that was being trumped up by bad men supporting worse men. It's time like this when I consider how many times in my life I have felt like the only group of humanity to have to go through something, and how many times I've been proven wrong simply by digging a little into the past. Not only had someone lived through something that was in the ballpark of what we are currently experiencing, the Athenians are sitting in the same row as us, rubbing olive oil on our backs. We know what the Athenians did at this point. It remains to be seen what we will do. So where do the Athenians turn? Where do they turn to rescue them from their tyrants? They turn to poetry. That's right, poetry to the rescue. Well, really a poet to the rescue. With the city tearing itself at the seams from the economic crisis, one man chooses to go it alone and save his city. Enter the Solon. He's got a cool name. Solon. Sounds like he's from another planet. Solon. Kind of acted like he was from another planet too. He was a poet who seized control of the Athenian government around 595 BC. And just saying, you know you're in a different world when you have poets seizing power. Now, this is the point where you might want to start taking notes to compare if our leaders decide to fix our economic crisis in a similar manner. The first thing that Solon does is before he even comes to power, he makes it clear that he's not a tyrant, merely a magistrate that will step down once his plan is in place, which he will do. This is an underappreciated facet of Solon. He's sort of George Washington's The Office of Magistrate, starting a tradition of abdicating office after a set time. Solon was big on creating habits. He felt they were actually better than laws. 
Now, the first thing that Solon did when he got into office is that he abolished all debt. And I wonder if that's on the menu for our recovery plan. Next, Solon went after the spurious practice of mortgaging oneself into slavery. He forbid anyone to borrow against themselves, effectively ending that insidious form of suffering during times of great abundance. Not finished, Solon then took on the courts and put into law two key building blocks of democracy, both aimed at financial justice. The first is to declare that all citizens of Athens were able to bring a suit against another citizen regardless of social standing and wealth. This decree was specific to facilitate financial redress. If you felt slighted in a deal, you are now able to use the courts to get your money back. The last major reform of Solon's serves a major step toward democratic self-rule. He established a just jury system designed to provide any citizen of Athens with a reasonably accurate jury of their peers. Solon allowed for any citizen of Athens to serve on a jury. Zimmern put it this way, quote, Solon's policies make the people master of the verdict. These policies had a name. Solon was a poet, after all, and he probably couldn't avoid coining a phrase that would embody his new decrees. He called his reforms fair play laws and hoped they would remedy the century-long crisis that Athens had been stuck in. And if there's any doubt that the crisis of the 7th and 6th century BC was a financial one, the fair play laws put it to rest. The first thing Solon does is to address financial inequality. He is a pretty remarkable man. Maybe he was from another planet. Where did this attitude of his come from, and how was he able to convince all of Athens that helping the poor and destitute was the way to go? As I said, a poet whose secret to ruling was, quote, not one of power, but one of kindness, unquote. Crazy. He continued his reforming waves in other areas as well. Solon also instituted daily readings of Homer in the marketplace. He established a State of the Union address where any future leader of Athens would have to account for their term in front of the whole community. He espoused that belief that habits were better than laws, so he tried to use a law to enforce a habit by decreeing that all Athenians only got to wear three different sets of clothes. He outlawed fashion, basically, so that sort of in a school uniform way, building equality in modes of dress. He established an immigration policy that had a pathway to citizenship in it. Remarkable that in such a time, with a city like Athens would allow outsiders not only access to their city and services, but a chance at actual citizenship, when usually the only way you got to see a city like Athens was as a slave. Then he fulfilled his promise and stepped down. He actually left Athens and took off on a 10-year trip. He wanted to let Athens work out his reforms without his meddling so his city could develop those habits as their own. It sounded almost too good to be true. For those of you listening that have teenagers, you know what I'm about to say. It was too good to be true. When Solon returned to Athens, it had reverted back to some of the problems that created the crisis in the first place. Though his return didn't bring another term as Athens' leader, his influence was felt as the ancient tribal oligarchs began to lose the magistrate's chair and more and more reformers in the mode of Solon took to the reins of the city. It was sort of a back and forth thing. You know, one time you'd get a moron, and then the next time you'd get a Solon, and then a moron, and then a Solon, moron, Solon. Some of the guys that were Solons were more pragmatic. One guy used his money 
to pay the debts of most of the Greeks and then buy a bunch of land and give it to them, free of debt. While other reforms were much more far-reaching, for instance, a magistrate named Cleisthenes established an early version of the separation of church and state. After wrestling power away from a particularly odious tyrant, Cleisthenes went to work dismantling the ancient tribal system. You know, they kept electing those oligarchs. Now, while electing those magistrates was something the tribal system was responsible for, it wasn't its actual prime function. The tribes were old. The tribes were ancient. They went back to before time itself. Something with that type of longevity begins to take on a different level of reverence. It becomes sacred and used in the right hands it can be used to stultify progress. It can just retard the system by forcing unqualified buffoons into positions of leadership. Either way, it was getting in the way of Athens realizing its full potential. Cleisthenes knew that he couldn't just abolish the tribes and leave a smoking crater in its absence. So he replaced those 45 or so tribes with 10 geographic quasi-political groups. He basically took the city-state of Athens and divided it up into a 10-piece pie, originating from the center the marketplace, radiating outward to the borders of the city-state. He established that no matter how far away from the walls of Athens you live, you were still a citizen of Athens and had a piece of the pie. He called the ten pieces the demes. These demes that he created gave the semblance of a tribe but was far more representative of the entire citizenry of Athens' city-state. Wait, what was that? Did you hear what I hear? Uh, a deme? Well, that's practically like saying, and Cleisthenes decided to go all the way, and he came up with a term to help define his new system of self-rule. He called it democracy. We got there. Boom goes the dynamite. There you have it. 40,000 years or so in the making, in or around 504 BC, the Athenian democracy is born, and we have finally reached our beauty. It was never a straight line. It just took some remarkable people and equally remarkable circumstances to bring it about. Now, the name, democracy, in which so much of the concepts power emanate today, was merely a crafty label back then, a successful branding image. It reminds me of the asinine acronym that our government concocts to occupy our loss. For example, we get uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism act, the USA Patriot Act, ladies and gentlemen. How much time is spent on coming up with those? And how is the message skewed based on the constricts of coming up with a cool-sounding acronym? I mean, do laws actually go off message just because some dumbass lawmaker wants to be cute? In any event, the term democracy stuck, well, at least in Athens. At the height of an economic crisis, suffering under the rule of malignant men and being torn asunder by forces no human had as of yet had to contend with. Not animal, not natural, not magical, but instead market forces. These new forces, the effects we are acutely aware of in our day, made the ancient Greeks pioneers and martyrs, the ones to make first contact with this particularly cold-hearted son of a bitch, and they suffered for it for over a century. Now, I can't stop making comparisons to us today. Our world feels eerily similar to theirs. That's why I was so keen on my trigression. Looking at kind of what we just covered, one point that can be made that may give some insight as to what comes next for us is what happens after Athens declares himself a democracy. Nothing. Nothing happened. No sweeping democratic revolution that saved all of Greece. Crickets. How insignificant was Athens' choice of self-rule to her fellow city-states? 
Out of the 1,000 or so city-states, only 52 ever even tried democracy, let alone successfully implemented a government based on self-rule. The takeaway from this to me is to face the real possibility that we are going to see the end of democracy pretty soon. The Greeks as a whole didn't like it. It lasted barely a century in ancient Athens, and considering our current state of government and governments around the world, democracy is not very popular nowadays either. Another takeaway is that it is better to look upon democracy as a lark, a shot in the dark, for people that had nowhere else to turn. It wasn't the Lone Ranger riding to the rescue, it was the Bolshevik Revolution of 1918 in Russia. Not politically, but in the sense that it was a shot out of the blue, a ridiculous millions-to-one chance that also lasted less than a century. The policies enacted that finally earned the title democracy saved Athens and pulled her out of the desperate straits she found herself in. In other parts of Greece, many of these non-democratic city-states were also able to pull themselves out of the financial crisis. But in almost all cases, it was due to a benevolent king type of situation, or the fact that they were allied with Athens, because Athens is about to get real and change the world. So for us then, as long as we have our own Soldon running things, or we hitch our wagon to the biggest horse in the race, we may have a chance of actually making it. Which leads us to the good news. Well, not for us. This doesn't pertain to us. But good news is if you called Athens home. Good news if you counted yourself a friend of Athens. And particularly bad news if you happen to find yourself at odds with the city. Thanks to surviving the economic crisis and doing so, they felt, by choosing the unheard of self-rule style of government, Athens was feeling cocky. This is normal, evolutionary behavior. They are a wholly new type of coalition, and one of the things that coalitions do, especially new ones, is that they like to make a statement, send a signal to their neighbors that they, the new kids on the block, were here, and want to show you we got the right stuff. I'll let the master lay it down for you as the historian Herodotus speaks on the subject of the signal that Athens is about to shoot that will be heard around the world. Quote, The Athenians, when governed by tyrants, were superior in war to none of their neighbors, but when freed from tyrants became by far the first. Unquote. So who does this new Athens decide to make a world-changing statement against? Warrior poets and playwrights along with stonecutters like Socrates' father, will send a message to the entire world at the Battle of Marathon, a story that the long-haired Persian knows all too well. That wraps up Episode 3 of Part 1 of The Alpha Human. I hope you enjoyed it. I look forward to the next time that you join me as we enter the fray.